Louise Bedford here. Just before we kick off with today's show, I wanted to let you know that for one week only, you can get up to 84% off a selection of my most popular trading education products available through tradinggame.com.au. Make no mistake. Your financial future is in your hands. So check out the audios, videos, and study courses that I have available at tradinggame.com.au. Now's your chance to develop your skills as a trader for up to 84% off, but only for the next week. Let's get on with the show. Hi guys, it's Caroline Stephen, financial journalist. Our guest today worked for the most famous woman in the world, Oprah Winfrey. Sherry Salata worked at the Oprah Winfrey Show, Harpo Studios and the OWN Network for 20 years. And for the show's last five years, she was Oprah's executive producer. And that means that she was Oprah's right-hand gal. She was the head honcho the organiser, the visionary of the show. She was the only person other than the director who was literally in Oprah's ear during the filming of all those shows. And God, don't you miss Oprah from our TV screens every day? Sherry's had ringside seats to the most famous people and experts in the world. She dedicated decades of her life to her dream job and she loved almost every minute of it. But the rest of her life was gathering dust on the shelf. And after years of telling other people's makeover stories, remember those incredible Oprah makeover stories? Well, now Sherry's telling her own. When she left Harpo Studios and the OWN Network in Chicago, Sherry moved to the City of Angels and she bought a house and called it Belle Vie, or Beautiful Life, in order to find her beautiful life. And she's written a book about it called The Beautiful No. It's a memoir about her road to the Oprah Winfrey show and how in the middle of her life, she realized she had the career of her dreams, but not the life of her dreams. Sherry's story shows that whether you're a part-time share trader coming from another career, looking for another income source, or you're in the second half of your life going full-time trading, wherever you're at in your trading career, that it is never too late to start living life on your own terms and living the life of your dreams. And on this topic of getting older, let's hear Louise Bedford in Mind Power before we go to Sherry and the first part of her interview today as she talks about getting older and some of its benefits. I've recently had a birthday and it is amazing how birthdays, especially significant birthdays, have a way of making you look backward as well as forward. What have we achieved so far and what still lies ahead? Now, as we get older, so the scientists tell us, our recall and our short-term memory tend to decline. However, what are some of the good parts about getting older? For a start, it feeds right into your trader's life. Pattern recognition, synthesizing information and getting the gist of things go up. So you can 
Have a conversation with your trading friends and instantly get the gist of what they're talking about. You can learn a new skill and instantly you have something in your background to tell you this is like that, therefore I'll learn this more quickly. So it's not all bad and in fact as we mature there are many things leading into an effective trading mindset that come as a result of getting older. So have a look for those things in your own life. I'll bet you now you're able to recognize patterns if you've honed your skills and you're able to synthesize information much more quickly than you could when you were 18. That whole young and dumb thing, even though it's a, a funny little statement people make, the main reason people say that is because of that synthesizing information coming more quickly as we get older and being slower when we are younger. So honor the new skills you're gaining and make sure that as you become more mature in the markets, you are grateful for what you have achieved so far. And then you'll be one step closer towards living your trader's life. Hi, I'm Perry Kaufman and I enjoy listening to Caroline on TalkingTrading.com. It's always a pleasure. Sherry Salata worked for 20 years at the Oprah Winfrey Show, Harpo Studios and the OWN Network, including the show's last five years as Oprah's executive producer. She has bared her soul in her new book, The Beautiful No, and it's a memoir about her road to the Oprah Winfrey Show and how in the middle of her life, she realized she had the career of her dreams, but not the life of her dreams. Sherry Slater, hello and welcome to Talking Trading. I am delighted to be with you. I have to tell you, I'm so happy. You know, Australia is my favorite country. Great. And we'll get to that because there's a lot yes. to talk about there. That's lovely. Yes. Thank you. And I am so excited to interview you. I'm only a touch nervous, but more excited. <laughs> Yay. Good. <laughs> my first question to you is this. You were 35 years old. You're 14 years out of college. You'd started from scratch more times than seemed reasonably possible. And as share traders, we relate to that. But you had a premonition, a knowing in your veins about working at the Oprah Winfrey Show. And strolling through those fable doors for the first time, you said it was like entering the Emerald City. Why did Oprah choose you to be her executive producer? Well, that was years later. I mean, that was 15 years later. At You know, at 35, it was an entry-level job at the Oprah Winfrey Show, and that in itself was a lottery win. I had applied twice. I mean, I had applied once, got rejected, and they dug my reel and resume out of an old closet. And, and a lot of time had passed, and they called me in. They called me in to um, come in and freelance. And, you know, it was the most amazing beginning of, you know, it changed everything. It changed my whole life. It gave me a spiritual life. It, you know, opened the world to me. It was really amazing. So was it like the Emerald City? It was a place you had wanted to work to for a long time? Yes, it was. And what it was was, you know, I was old enough. I'd had enough jobs to know what wasn't good. 
So I'd had enough corporate jobs, enough, you know, tried enough things that I knew what wasn't a good fit. And I knew what I wanted was meaning. I wanted what I did every day for people, for whoever, an audience, in the case of the Oprah show, I wanted it to matter. I wanted it to be meaningful. And the minute I walked in those doors, I knew all the ingredients of fulfilling work and meaningful work were there for me. And the day Oprah called you into her office, what did she say to you about becoming her AP? Oh, right. Um, well, that was a big shockeroo, honestly, because I, I was, I didn't come up, I wasn't a showgirl. That's what, how I used to think of them. The producers who were been producing the show for years, I was not really one of them. And I had come up through the promo department ranks. So when, when she, (laughs) when she called me in and there was a several people in her office, um, I was like, really? I mean, are you sure? And I asked her to write down uh, why she was choosing me. And she said, because, and what she wrote to me was uh, a note I still treasure because you know my heart. Says everything. Which was, yeah, which was a lovely thing to say. And then, then I EP'd the show for five years, which was a trip. It was crazy and fun and exciting and, and really special until that flash show rolled. You say in the book that you were a born producer, but that producing wasn't something you thought of until much later in life. You had a whole series of jobs after college. You worked in toy stores. You were the store manager for a 7-Eleven for three years and that you had unwittingly made misery your compass. Yes. What an epiphany that was. When I looked back on those early years, what I could see was that I, would ne- I wouldn't make a move. I wouldn't acknowledge that something was not a right fit, not the right thing, until I was so miserable I couldn't get out of bed. And, and what I realized later was, wow, what would happen if you made happiness your compass? You could literally avoid lots and lots of misery. So really, you know, especially when I'm talking to young people who are trying to figure it out, that is my best advice. Make happiness your compass because that is the end game. That is the big goal, not just fattening up your resume or having, you know, fancy, nice business cards. Your goal is happiness. So the sooner you make that your day in and day out, daily goal, daily compass, um, you know, you're asking yourself, does this feel good? Does it feel good to lean here? Am I enjoying this? Do I feel good about this? Um, The sooner you're really asking yourself those questions and getting really deep into it, the, the sooner you're living that happy life, which is what what you're shooting for. I want to go to the Mojave Desert and you tell a really powerful story about your, you were asked to draw a picture of yourself and you yeah. drew a, a girl with blonde hair and three X's. Yes. Well, this was, this was, I mean, I was 56. I had just left the, the world of Oprah um, and I was launching my own business and I also realized that, like you said in, in your intro, that I had manifested the career of my dreams but not the life of my dreams. And it involved... You know, some very, so a lot of soul searching and a process that I ultimately called the reckoning, where I literally went area by area in my life and realized that there was so much unlived life for me. 
and and when I was in the middle of that desert, um, and and I did that exercise, which believe me, I would thought it was a bunch of silly business, until I saw how powerfully. What I drew for myself was I had literally made myself unconscious. So what I realized when I drew that photo and I looked at it and I saw the X's over my eyes, the X's over my mouth, that what my subconscious was allowing me to represent, the message to me was, you've gone unconscious. You've gone unconscious. And, um, you know, the, the last three, three and a half years have been that, you know, it's been after the reckoning, which is manifesting the joy ride and really understanding that the middle of your life might be the beginning of the second half, not the beginning of the long goodbye. So what are you doing? I mean, I looked at myself and said, have you already had your glory days and it's over and now you're going to be collecting stamps, which if you love that, that's great. That's not my thing. Or are your days going to get more and more glorious? Is your life going to become more and more glorious and satisfying and, and joy-filled? And I decided that I wanted the second. I wanted that second experience. So that would mean I would have to redefine what the middle of life means because in the culture I live in, it, it really does mean sit down, girl. You're done. You had your chance at the dance. And I had to completely you know, turn that idea on its head and, you know, join up with um, one of my best friends of 30 years, who is also my, my podcast co-host and my business partner, Nancy Halla, and say, I need support. You need support. Let's manifest the next glory days. So let's just go to that manifestation. So you had three X's. You had, rather than your blue eyes, you had X's over your eyes and X's over your mouth. And I so related yeah. to that. You'd spent so long telling other people's stories. You just squashed everything down. And now you're expressing. So you moved to the City of Angels and you bought Belle V, which means beautiful life. Beautiful life. Yes. It wasn't that fancy. It just came to me. It was like every day I needed to give my house a name because that was the space in which I was going to create a beautiful life. And I needed to remind myself every day that that mattered to me. Mm. And so you were fifty over 55, but you weren't washed up. You felt so much life pulsing through your veins. That's true. But if I would have listened to the culture or if I would have looked for the signs the culture would, would send me or what some of my peers were deciding for themselves, which is, well, I'm just going to wait for someone to call. My kids are, you know, grown. They have their own kids. Now I'm just going to cut my hair in a sensible style and wait to be useful to somebody. You have, and, you and have I great just hair. Had, <laughs> Thanks. I had to deliberately decide I want something else and I want to I want to be in in tribe like communion with other women who are willing to say I want something else too. Can we just go back to some of those vulnerable issues that were coming up for yeah. healing at this time? So one yeah. of them was body issues. That was a big thing for you and big big time. And you're so cute and it surprised me when I read about them because I didn't think that you'd be the sort of person to struggle with them. And it seems strange because they oddly seem to mirror Oprah's a little bit. One of the funniest chapters in your <laughs> book, and it was hilarious, was the trauma of being in a Hollywood star-studded workout class, dying of exhaustion. 
Well, this was this was after you know after the reckoning and 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 getting ready. My friend Nance and I were were getting ready to realize our our body dreams, our our dreams across the board, and I drug us to the fancy schmancy, you know, for supermodels and and stars only kind of workout thing, and it was way too hard for us. I I was too fat, you know. I had been I had been. <laughs> So stressed out, working so many hours for so long. I had been so neglectful of my body and my health. And I, I was in no shape to be doing that. And neither was Nancy. And, you know, we, 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 you know, we were just basically trying not to vomit on our shoes. And it was, it was hard. And it was, you know, we had a lot of shame issues around it. You were 100 pounds overweight at the time. Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's what I finally said. Now, now it was a hundred pounds based on my super duper goal weight that I hadn't been in a really long time. But you know, that's what would happen in 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 not handling stress correctly with you know the the most healing uh, modalities. You, I, I would end up eating. Mm. I would eat my, I would eat my feelings. I would celebrate my feelings. I would eat my feelings some more. And I also, for many, many years, while I was a producer, was a smoker. Mm. So I had quit smoking, and 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 you know, also with the hormonal changes when I was fifty, it was just like a a triple bomb went off. And so when I finally took stock, I was like, wow. If you really wanted to be the goal weight you've wanted to be for the last 15, 20 years, you need to lose 100 pounds. I mean, that was like, I mean, all my life it was 10 pounds, 15 pounds, maybe 17 pounds. Oops, it's 30 pounds. And I would deal with it, you know, and get myself back to some respectable overweightness. But yeah, that was a very sobering for me. And now it's yoga and flexibility. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's plant, it's plant predominant, plant based, um, diet. And, you know, really it's, it's bigger than a program. Um, you know, where I netted out is, you know, I've been to the mountain of programs. I've seen every program. I've heard every expert. I have all the information I need. And what I finally realized is, girl, what you really need, you need to become the expert of your own self. And you need to figure out what is the right personalized prescription for you. What is a joy-filled life for you? What does that look like? Let's talk about love. And I know this is quite a vulnerable topic. And I hope you're okay to talk about it. Oh, I'm, to I'm totally okay. See, well, listen, uh, I, I was terrible at love relationships. Just horrible, which is why I completely threw myself 100% into work in my career. You say something funny in the book. So many funny lines. Something that feels like breathing to others feels like Cirque du Soleil for you. And oh my God, your Tony Robbins seminar. Well, Oprah and I were at, we, we went to his walk on fire big day uh, seminar thing. And it, it culminates in the big fire walk. And we were, the next day we were going to be filming him. The cameras were going to be filming us a little bit. And as we went through it, and the next day we were going to film an interview with him. Well, have you ever been to a Tony Arena event? Yep. Have you? Okay. So you're going to exactly know what I'm talking about. We, of course, since I'm with Oprah, we're seated near the front, but we're still in the midst with the people. And um, Tony literally calls on people and stands up and has the most intimate personal grueling conversations with them and they spill their guts from the core of their soul 
their most painful humiliations. And I'm sitting there watching that going, oh, like with such respect and reverence for the bravery of those people because I would never in a million years do that. (laughs) So Tony starts pacing back and forth in front of the, you know, however many tens of thousands are there. And he starts talking about a woman who defaults to her career because she knows she can get an A there and and consequently does not have a love life because her love because she's not good at it she always puts her time and attention and focus into her career because she wants to get the A and until she's willing to get some C's and not just get the A she's going to have this empty place in her life and i i whispered to oprah oh my god he's talking about me and she goes, no, he's not. He wouldn't do that. Meaning we're there on business. I'm not, I'm not in a seminar attendee. I'm, I'm there producing something. And next thing you know, he starts walking toward us. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can feel my blood pressure soaring. I can feel the sweat dripping from under my armpits. And Oprah goes, oh, my gosh, I think you're right. He is coming for you. <laughs> And even as I, so she is howling with laughter. I am like ready. I, I, I could have possibly dropped dead in my seat. I mean, that's how much anxiety, hysterical anxiety I was filled with. And it's, it's like he saw that and, and kept walking. And, and oh my gosh, I mean, that was, we were just doubled over and doubled over and doubled over. And the next day, she asked him, were you co- we're talking about Sherry? Were you going to come over? And he goes, I was, but I could see she couldn't handle it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's right. You know, people need to raise their hand if they want to volunteer that stuff. You've had front row seats to more famous people than anyone else on the planet. And it's interesting to hear what you said of fame and what it does offer people. You called it the endless cookie jar of number one experiences, number one table experiences. Yes. Well, here's the thing. You know when you go to a restaurant, and it's, it's, it's a phrase my dad, Stan, coined, table number one. You want table number one, and, and thus you'll have a table number one experience, meaning you have the best table overlooking the lake or the ocean or perfectly positioned in the room, and that is true. I mean, believe me, there are tons of things about being famous that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Um, people making up stories about you and just getting away with it. And, you know, um, the haters want to hate. It, it can be really quite awful. But the one thing that's really nice is that you don't even realize after a while that literally everything is being put together for your pleasure. Everything. And you, you're all, you walk in. You, did, you know, when I'm with a famous person and, and they're like, oh, you know, did we need a reservation? I'm like, well, you don't. I mean, we'll just we'll get sashayed right in, you know, to the best table in the land. People will be asked to leave and you won't even notice. Um, yeah, I mean, it is really amazing the the front row seat to life you get when when you when you're fame famous and loved. Famous and loved. So you had front row seats to some of the best spiritual practitioners on the planet. And the Oprah show was a doorway to spirituality. She grew in spirituality, so did you. And I'd like to talk about some of the lessons you learned. One of them was the awesome quantum power of stories and that the most crucial ones are the ones we tell ourselves. Yeah, I mean, 
there, there's nothing like the education I got, you know, watching and producing shows with Deepak Chopra and Eckhart Tolle. And, you know, of course, I was right in the audience for Marianne Williamson. For those of us who worked at Harpo Studios, whether or not we worked on a show, we all watched every taping because that that was our work. And we taped two shows a day. So just to take all that in, I mean, it, it really was so heart opening, so soul expanding. And, you know, literally, it's the best company benefit I've ever had anywhere I worked. Being paid to build build a spiritual life is just totally amazing. And, you know, one of the things that I, you know, when I had a moment's pause, when all of a sudden I was working for myself and I was taking stock and really rethinking my life, what I could see is, yes, I've been a storyteller all my life. I'm a writer, I'm a producer, but what I realized is what you're not producing, Sherry, you're not producing that story you're telling yourself in in your head, which is an automatic tape that just goes on and on and on, and, and for most of us is usually really harsh, really critical, and devoid of any kind of compassion. It's the voice that tells us we're not enough, we're not worthy, we're kind of stupid, why did we say that, we're too fat, we're not pretty enough, um, you know, that we're weird, we're odd, we don't fit in, no, whatever, whatever that tape is for, for you, everybody has their own details, but we're all familiar with it. And when you start to pay attention and say, wow, if my thoughts create my reality, what the hell am I doing? I need to get a handle on this. I need to focus on what I'm saying to myself about myself because this is the creative moment. I am creating my life with these thoughts and I, and I want something so much more elevated and so much richer. I'm going to change that story and really pay attention to it and rewrite it. Very very Esther Hicks. I love Esther Hicks as well. Oh, do you? I do. Oh my God! Well, that you know, there you go. If 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 you if you're um, if you're immersed in the content from Abraham Hicks, you've got your path. And that's it for this week's episode of Talking Trading. Guys, stay tuned next week to hear part two of the Oprah story with Sherry Salata. As always, if you like this show, please be sure to tell a friend. This is super important because word of mouth is the most powerful way that people can get in touch with us. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcast and make sure you give us a big fat five-star review because it helps people find us. You'll also notice that Talking Trading doesn't use sponsors and barely advertisers. This is because Chris Tate and Louise Bedford fund this show from tradinggame.com.au. If you'd like to get Louise's five-part free e-course, register at tradinggame.com.au. So until next week, happy trading. The views represented on Talking Trading are general in nature and do not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Before acting on any of the information, consider its appropriateness in regards to your own situation.